The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens-Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello, and welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, we radiate ineffable love with Peter Panagor, a former minister and a knowing and inspirational messenger of the beloved near-death experiencer and international best-selling author. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Christy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to have this conversation because you're a near-death experiencer. I've had many near-death experiencers on the show, and I never get tired of talking about it. Well, I'm glad to hear that about you because that is something that never happens to me either. Although I kept my mouth shut for 20 years, once I opened my mouth, I can't stop talking about it. So perfect. Oh, wow. Wow. And you are a, a former minister and a TV minister, as, as a matter of fact. Matter of fact. Yeah. Right. And um, but have left all that behind. Yes, I left it all behind. Long story short, I studied mysticism in divinity school under the dean of students who changed the course of my direction. I was going to go for my PhD and she sent me into the church and I hid inside the church for 18 years as a pulpit minister, I always considered myself a missionary of ineffable love inside the superstructure of the denomination. But I misled the congregation every Sunday into the false idea that I was a believer when I was not. I never said I was a believer. I never said I was a knower. I just never mentioned it. And it gave me the superpower in the community to assert the relationship of love within the context of the congregation to help them become cultural influencers within the community. But I did this all in the down low. This was not in the forefront. It was always through, well, the energy of the divine and the, I, because I locked my lips shut about it. I kept this a secret. Wow. Well, how did you get to the ministry in the first place then? Well, I dying had a lot to do with it. Okay. So as a child, 
five and six year old and then again in high school and then the previous year before I died I had other out-of-body mystical experiences wow. with the angelic being the intellect the powerful mighty almighty who carried me out of myself showed me parts of myself and have fed my understanding none of which I understood okay so none of this came into focus for me until after I died because all of it was outside of my brain's capacity to grasp and so when I died after I died, I changed the course of my life. I had been an English major studying, including, and I'm from New England, so, and Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Emily Dickinson, they're all like in my neighborhood. And so I studied transcendentalism and romanticism, and then that led me into Eastern studies. And then I died, and I was going to go to architectural school, join the family business, get my grad degree in architecture and draw buildings. And then I died, and it left me with this internal disorientation. So I found myself strongly connected to the ineffable love in my interior, but simultaneously unable to access it to anywhere the degree when it was the flood of cosmic, multiple cosmic sizes of divine love that made me into existence. I couldn't access that level, but I knew that it was still there. And so I went in search of tools to uncover inside myself that which I already knew I was, but could not touch to the way in the way that I had before. And I, I came back, I chose to come back. And I guess I made a deal when I came back, not knowing the fine print of the contract that left me trapped in this material form inside a material world that to me was two-dimensional and flickering black and white old-time film through which there was light emanating all the time. But my primary relationship was as witness and alien to this much lesser, denser form of fragmented light. And so I had this inner desire this suffering that propelled me to find tools to access that which I knew was real. And that led me to divinity school because I could have gone into Hinduism. I could have looked into Zen Buddhism, which I did. I looked into all of these things, but I got advice from a spiritual person in the Catholic church, a professor of mine who connected to the monastery. So this particular professor, after I did, the year after I died, I took this class at UMass Amherst. And it was in the comparative literature department. It was comparative mysticism, East and West. Wow. Yeah. And so this professor, he exposed us to all these books that I still have on my desk. They're right over here. I still read them. And they're all marked up and full of all sorts of stuff. But the monastery that he brought us to on retreat was the same monastery that was connected to my high school. So I went to Catholic high school. In my Catholic high school and my senior year, they taught us this thing called that had just been developed. This is the early, late 70s, contemplative meditation. Mm -hmm. But it became centering prayer practice within the decade. And it's a Zen Buddhist, Theravada Buddhism, Christian mysticism combination of centering into silence. Mm -hmm. And because of a psychedelic experience I had in high school, where I took a triple hit of LSD and had a reawakening, which set my two earlier ones in childhood into some perspective. I found myself immersed in meditation because I recognized that the end of self is the access to the light, to the silence. So when I came back from the dead and I took this class, I was already a meditator. And when we went on retreat to this monastery, I met this monk. And this monk 
radiated the I could see the light around him. I could see light inside everybody's eyes when I came back. It was very disconcerting because no one else could see it. I learned pretty quickly to shut my mouth about what happened because I was like an alien in an alien body, like pretending passing to be human. But this monk, when he looked at me, his eyes, I could see into him and I could see that he saw into me. And so I attached myself to him. And I began to be a devotee of this monk for several years until he died. And he became my spiritual teacher. And that exposure to him and the advice of this professor who said to me, if you're after the ineffable divine, you can find this in the Upanishads and in the Vedas and in Lao Tzu, or you can find it in Christianity, which is your cultural context. So I went to the professor and I fibbed. I told him, I got this friend and this friend had this mystical experience and this friend, you know, it's like, not me. And he advised my friend to stay within Christianity, which led me to divinity school. And so I applied to Princeton, Yale and Harvard. And I got into two out of three and I chose Yale to study under a professor who then subsequently left before I even arrived and unbeknownst mm -hmm. to me. And so the Dean of Students allowed me for a three-year independent study under her tutelage to study of mysticism across the university and found money for me and a professor for me to tutor me. And so super supported me. So when it came time to get her recommendation for the graduate program, she advised me to join the church and said to me, you have this heart of compassion that I think would be beneficial. And I'm like, oh no. I, I went into, the, that's how I ended up there. And I, she's, okay, so I got to tell you about this woman. She's still in my life. She's 93 years old and she lives in California and I communicate with her at least once a year and thank her for what she did for me. Yeah. So let me get this straight. So you studied mysticism, fascinating subject, and went to United Church of Christ. Yes. I mean, because the Catholic Church has a fair amount of mysticism already. But they don't have sex. They don't have public sex. They don't? They do. You can't get married. You can't have sex. You can be, you know, a lot of, I knew a lot of gay priests, but True. I wasn't gay. I'm straight and I like sex. And I'm like, I can't do that. Well, so I, I, right. I like women. I didn't want to go into the monastery. I thought about the monastery. I was going to the monastery on a regular basis. Right. Right. Yeah. And then and you didn't go the, the Eastern route either. So why United Church of Christ? Because, so I looked at the Episcopalians, which have a high wisdom tradition. I have a high church wisdom right. tradition. And right. I, I should add then that I grew up Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic. I was exposed to both churches every Sunday and Sunday schools through my life. And so I had a steeping in mysticism because of who they are. So when I went to the Greek church in Boston, to the Holy Cross in Boston, they said, you've been essentially, this is my words, not their words. You've been poisoned by Western thinking and you can't come to us. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, that sounds kind of harsh. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the first time I heard that. I heard it at BU too, but from you've been poisoned by Eastern thinking, you can't come to your uh, syncretistic thinking. So anyway, so <laughs> I've had a trip rod in front of me my whole life after I died. And so the Catholic church can't have sex. Didn't want to do that. Experimented. I made a deal with God. It's like, I'll give you three years in this Protestant thing that I had no idea what it was, but I chose the United Church of Christ because they didn't have a wisdom tradition like the Episcopalians, but they had a social justice tradition. And I was steeped in social justice. I've been an anti-nuclear activist. I have an arrest record as an anti-nuclear activist. Good for I've you. Been, I've been an organizer on New England wide. I've run in, I've worked in soup kitchens and homeless shelters and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. 
UCC had this avenue for me in order to express community and solidarity and community of humanity through the divine presence. What they didn't have was any sort of mysticism, but they had a high intellectualism. So I could, you know, push on the gas pedal on that end. But in terms of living a contemplative life, which is what I would not have in a Protestant denomination, mm -hmm. I, I built that into my contract. So in my contract, every church I signed a contract with, I had a proviso. My first church I signed a contract with, they had to let me out on Tuesdays to play on the ultimate Frisbee team in the afternoons. And <laughs> well, I'm glad you've got your priorities straight. I totally did. And they had to allow me space to meditate. And as I moved forward, I added yoga to my contract. You had to not question my practice of yoga or my quest or my practice of meditation as they were the things that fed my ministry. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to, in the confines of the church, continue my contemplative life in the public eye, but nobody knew what I was doing on my interior. Yeah. And they gave me the opportunity to continue my studies of mysticism, which I did. Wow. Okay. So that's background on religion and how you got to be in ministerial practice. What happened with your near-death experience? You froze to death, didn't you? I did. I froze to death. I made, I know it's crazy. And I have trouble with cold to this day. Like, sure, uh, I, I do. It wrecked my internal thermostat. But I was ice climbing in Alberta, Canada, in Banff Provincial Park. It was my first ice climb, not my first climb. My first extended winter, we were out snow caving for seven days before that, eight days before that. That was my first extended trip like that into the wilderness, but not, but I've been a winter camper my whole life. Boy Scouts, you know, on my honor, do my duty and all that stuff. And uh, so I'd been a backpacker all through New England and a hiker. So this was my element. Ice climbing was new to me. Ropes were not rock was not. And I made an error that I, that you can read about in the book and error of mine compounded and left us stranded on the mountain at sunset. The temperature dropped 30 degrees. And eventually as we fought our way off, as hypothermia advanced and frostbite mm -hmm. robbed us, I died. And yeah. Did anybody else in your party die? No, he would have died though. Had I stayed dead, he was going to die. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get out of this? Well, you could say it was a miracle. Uh, um, yeah. So, but I would say a practical miracle. I have to set the scene here is that we're on the final rappel. We're about 100, 150 feet up from the bottom. We're the first time through the night we're safe from falling because there's iron pins and rings and carabiners and straps into the mountain. So we're hooked into the mountain. Tim's to my left. I'm to the right. Uh, we're standing on a ledge the, side, the size of a boardroom table and the I had the rope, but I ex advanced state of hypothermia. My feet have gone from being on fire with cold to not feeling anything. Oh, and I had unzipped my coat because when a person becomes irrational. Right. And I was still pulling on the rope, but the rope was jammed. So I had one end of the rope tied to me. The other end was around the corner and there was a, a corner like this. And the rope came around the corner up the mountain into an, another iron ring, and but it was jammed and it was stuck and I couldn't get it out. And there was nothing I could do about it. And we're still 150 feet up and nobody knows where we are and we're stuck here. And it's been hours and hours and hours and, oh. and no food, no water, and we're dying. So, and I started falling asleep. So I fall asleep, last stage, fall asleep, smack down on the rock, stand oh. back up yank on the rope, fall asleep. And sleep came like a like the falling curtain on a stage. When the sandbag breaks and the curtain just drops, boom, like that, sleep would come like that. And I would just be unconscious 
And then I'd smack on the rock and wake up and stand. And then this last time I fell off the rock. So I was dangling on the harness. So every time I fell asleep, the rope was still stuck. But this time that I died, I rolled off the cliff. I don't really know what happened. I know what I, what, where my body was when I came back because I could see it. And I was sort of off the cliff a little bit. And that probably released the rope. And so when I was forced back into my body, impressed, crushed, reduced, painfully shoved, injected into my body again, and then my vision of heaven ended like the closing of an eye, and I was trapped. When I came back to my brain came online, I began to feel pain and suffering. I began to wake up. I heard noises. I could hear this shouting and screaming that resolved into language. I could don't die, don't die. And I opened my eyes and there's Tim staring down at me and he's crying and he's screaming and he's shaking me and don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. And he's like, You're, he sees my eyes open. You are dead. You are dead. You are dead. He pulls me up and the rope was free and we descended. And then we self-treated for hyperthermia, which because I, so the other thing is, is I'd been on the National Ski Patrol as a volunteer and a professional patroller since I was in high school. So I was wilderness trained. I was cold weather trained in first aid. So we self-treated for hypothermia when we got to the bottom. Wow. You are extremely lucky. I was, but when I was dead, I chose to come back. I experienced a hell of my own making, a purgation of fiery love, uh, an end of self-identity, the calling of the seeing the original creation of my original self as a photon of the divine light, a super connected, super positioned with the divine being itself, which was a bazillion, trillion, gazillion photons of light as one energy that I was part of and had this radically life-changing experience seeing my parents alive and death. And then I asked to come back and the divine, I said, in the end, can I come back here? And the voice said, yes, you can come back here. And I said, well, then I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live your life. Shot me out. So I chose to come back and I was sent back. And I came back with a choice before I arrived. And the choice was the fullness of the fullness of the presence of the light or something by many multiple millions of degrees less than that in my human form. And I chose a degree or five less than the fullness of the light because I wanted an identity. I wanted creativity. I wanted to live a life. I thought to myself, how can I ever bring this back if I'm not a full human being? And so I asked to be human. And that meant what I am being exactly the person that I am, full of flaws, full of flaws and creativity and capability and detriments. And so I carried the light with me and it became my raison d'etre. You said you wanted to come back and then the voice said, I can't remember what she said, but it's like, basically you won't be the same or you won't be. So be that, yep. Right. So what did that mean to you? Well, it meant two things to me. It, at the time, it meant when I first came back for the next 48 hours, it meant, and for the next freaking year or longer. But initially it was like, why did I make this stupid decision to come back? This place is full of pain and suffering and not the deal that I remember that I made. And I became angry. I became angry, but also knowing at the same time that I only had a single salvation. And that was the elimination of myself and the return to the whiteness of being, the light itself. And so I lived in this conflicted state 
of enfleshment and divine presence that made me non-attached to the world and a witness to my own self. While I perceived inside of every single person that I met the light of the divine being and in myself, and I knew that no one could see it but me. So I became an isolate. I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut because it was telling me that I had to speak this message that is unspeakable, you know, divine, ineffable love. It is unspeakable. And the ineffable love was telling me, my beloved, my beloved, I came back bereft of the one love of my life, the only love that has ever been reality to me and still remains unrequited reality. And so this energy ordered me to be a speaker for it, but then said no words for you. So, or for anyone, there's no words for this. There have never been words for this. Right. And so I had to, I was on my own to find my own language, to understand it for myself. So I went on this 40 year journey of scholarship and contemplative. That's what I was doing. That's what I do in order to figure out a way to move enough of myself out of the way to let the light speak for itself. And so I've lived my life I wanted to get married. I didn't want kids, but I got kids and they're the best thing that ever happened to me and my granddaughter, but I didn't, but uh, this was in the nuclear, I was an, an, an anti-nuclear activist and, and nuclear war. We came internationally, came very close to nuclear war when I was in divinity school. And had it not been for a Russian colonel who did not press the button against orders, it's a not well-known, but absolutely true thing that happened. I was like, I don't want to bring kids into this freaking world of violent human beings. And then we got pregnant, got married by this time. And then we got pregnant and I had a kid and I stayed in the ministry because of my family. I was done after three years. I was like, I'm out of here, but I had a baby and I needed a job. And so I stayed in the church and I moved to this little tiny island off the coast of Maine after I had this gig outside of New Haven and full of artists and lobstermen and lived in a, a wild edge of humanity because nature is prayer for me stepping out nature bathing yeah even after this wild experience you had even more so it was the only nature which can be extraordinarily violent ask anybody who's been in a tornado or been near one right but nature itself as it lives every living creature emits the same light that's why I see it in people. I see this little, every time I look for it, I don't have to always look for it, but there's always the shimmer around people. There's always light in people's eyes. Even the darkest humans, they still have light inside them and plants and birds and bees and butterflies. I live now, I have a microhabitat. I've rewilded for decades. I've been rewilding. So I rewild my yard and I live next to the woods, next to the ocean and in the midst of a prayer every time I step outside. I love that. So after your near-death experience, could you start telling people about it right away? Did they get, did they kind oh, of what happened? No. I learned as a child not to talk about mystical experiences from what happened to me when I was five. What and happened so, to you when you were five? When I was five, I was taken out of myself and brought into the presence of the divine and shown my light in my light body and shown that I had a previous contract and agreement and that I could see that I wasn't a human being and that I'd been carried by the angelic being. And then when I was six, Ganesh came to me, Catholic Orthodox kid outside of Boston, no idea about Hinduism, showed me wisdom and the infinity of the universe, and a bunch of stuff. And so this all sort of set me on this interior path that began before I was born and which I saw. So when I was dead the first time, I died, I've died twice now. And the first time I died, I entered into some of my previously incarnated bodies, which were happening simultaneously from my point of view. 
And so I know that my go, I've been on the journey. I don't self-identify as a human being, as Peter. I mean, I, I live in the world. I got a mortgage. I, you know, I, I do my jobs. I care for my kids. I do everything I have to do, practicalities, yada, yada. But my self-identity is I know where I'm from and I know who I am and I know where I'm going. And that I have been in pursuit of more of that my whole life. So I lived isolated. I lived isolated in the public view. My job was very public. And when I went to television, it became even more public. But I locked down interior life of silence because I couldn't say what I knew. And I knew that it's not sayable. And so the only avenue I decided, okay, I'm going to skip back. So after I died, I went back to UMass and I took a mime course. I'd been immediately after I died, I traveled in the United States in a theater company. I was in a theater, university-based theater company in Montana, and we traveled all the United States. And so I was on stage doing mime in American Sign Languages for the deaf. And when I got back to UMass, I took a mime course. And it turns out that the teacher's teacher's teacher was Marcel Marceau, who taught Hatha Yoga. And so I found myself in this Marcel Marceau school. And in the middle of class one day, my teacher, who is still a friend of mine, he showed me how he showed all of us, but I was the only one who could see it, how to find chi, prana. Yeah. And, and then he tested me in front of the class. And then he asked me how I understood this. I said, I lied. I said, I don't know how I know how to do this. And because keeping a secret is an important thing. I didn't want people to think I was crazy. I realized that I was outside of my Christian tradition, outside of, I didn't believe in anything human beings made. Everything's made up inside our heads. Everything we have, every idea we have is all made up. Yeah, it's and all the tricks. Yeah. It is. And nobody knows. <laughs> no, so yeah. you, go, you go around saying, yeah, you're, you're all crazy. Guess who they point their finger at? Right. The one who says you're all crazy. And so once I discovered prana, I read Pramahansa Yogananda and the Yoga Sutras, and I found the tool of Kriya Yoga, and I combined Kriya Yoga with my Hatha Yoga and my centering prayer practice and embarked on my own journey and decided in that class that until people could tell me that they saw it from me, I would never say a word about it. And I never did. And it wasn't not until after my second heart attack in 2000, my first heart attack in 2015, my second death, that the yoga teachers in my town where I've been going to, you know, going to vinyasa flow and they, all the teachers allowed me to practice my own Kriya. They didn't know that's what I was doing, but they let me do my own thing because I'd been publicly practicing yoga at the YMCA for decades. And once the yoga studios started, I started practicing with those folks. And so they gave me a lot of leeway. And then one day the yoga teacher says to me, Peter, when are you coming back from class to class? I'm like, I'm not coming back. She's like, why? I said, because I'm practicing on my own. She said, no, but you don't understand when you're in class, you radiate so much that the entire class changes and everybody knows it and we all talk about it. And I was like, what? Because I felt that happening, but I couldn't ask anybody else if they felt that happening. Because it's like the sensei, the karate dojo is calling herself sensei. The sensei never calls herself sensei. That's the honorific. So you can't ever claim, I can't ever claim anything, but I waited till people told me and then four or five other people in my town told me. That same summer, I was like, okay, maybe the second death kind of popped me open finally. And so I started my YouTube channel. My TV show ended. The 90 year, it had a 90-year run on radio and TV. I was the last guy. A new corporation purchased the TV station, and we got slowly and kindly, graciously released. And then I started my YouTube channel all as an experiment to see whether I could find other people in the world like me who seek the oneness of being and understand their own transcendence. And it turns out that mysticism 
It has basically four components or other components to it. The definition that I use is William James and from the varieties of religious experience. It's transient. It has a beginning and an end. It's passive. It happens to you. You don't make it happen. Although you can encourage the space of it through meditation and breath work and other practices. It's ineffable. You can't ever talk about it. And it leaves noetic wisdom in your soul. And so you change as a person. And so after my TV show ended, I decided to put this to a test. And so I needed work. And so I started getting day gigs at, at local churches of all different kinds. They all wanted me to come and speak because I'd been on television. So they're all small country churches and that, you know, and I started asking in church before I preached because they all knew me from TV and I was kind of exposing them. My book had already come out. So they knew I was a near-death experiencer. And so I would ask from the pulpit, raise your hand, who here has ever had a mystical experience? And I defined it for them. Nobody, nobody said, okay, so who here has ever had a visitation from the dead? Who here has ever had a visitation from the dead where you now, they communicated to you telepathically and you now have an understanding of their immortality that you didn't have before and it's not based in your belief? Raise your hand. Up to 50% in every congregation. And then I'd say, who's ever told anyone? They all told somebody. Who's ever told about it in church? Zero. And so there's this big public hidden experience, conglomeration of experiences mystical experience types that's sort of hidden in plain view. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to help people talk about it. I'm trying to help normalize. So I came out, the reason, one of the reasons I kept it secret, Christy, is because I was afraid I was going to lose my job, my career, my credibility. So, and I experienced the loss of credibility on the airplane two days ago when I mentioned it to this guy I was having this very high level AI conversation with, and he's an engineer. And when I mentioned oneness of being, he shut down and, you know, I still make that mistake, but I found that I'm not alone. When I was in divinity school, all of my peers were dead. All of the people, all of the mystics, Meister Eckhart, Julian in Norwich, John Roosbrook, Teresa of Avila, throw in the Eastern people too, Rumi and Kafir and all these other people. They were my peer group. I didn't have anybody else I could talk to about it. Nobody. And if I was afraid to talk about it, divinity school, they all knew I was the weird one doing yoga in the library and meditating, at, you know, and not going. I never went to chapel. I never, I never went to chapel. Chapel is every single day and every student was expected. I went once to hear a professor speak. I never went to chapel. I had the chapel inside myself right. and that's where I worked to develop it in my meditative life. And so I kept it a secret for fear of loss of credibility. And then when my book came out, I was encouraged by all these people in New York, TV people. And then once I came out, once I died, and as the book, so I'm die, die a second time, the book comes out when I'm in the hospital. Amazon released it a month early. And mm -hmm. so I was suddenly in the wide open. But the benefit of that second NDE was that I'm all in now. I always held something back. I always held back a little bit. I always hid a little bit because it wasn't safe. And now it's all I do. Right. Be who you are. You know, Peter, it's interesting because the early days of the church, the Bible is full of mysticism, you know, right? Transubstantiation, burning bush, visitations, seeing angels, full of, you know, the basis of our Western religion is mysticism. How did we get so far away? Oh, excellent question. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive, holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events 
at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a co-worker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, back to our podcast and back to our guest. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So all religions, all major religions are founded by individual mystics. Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith, Zoroastra, I can't remember the name of the man from Baha'i, Jesus, Muhammad, everybody, all of them. They're all mystics, every one of them. They're all mystics. And they're all hobbled by the inability of language to express their experience. So every single one of them speaks only in metaphor and myth and symbol Mm -hmm. and Those kinds of stories go over the heads of most people, especially the second generation followers. The first generation followers who experience the radiance of the person, they're like, there's something about this person. I can feel it, you know, and maybe they have some progression along the path. But then what happens is in all religions is becomes doctrinized and codified by those who are theologians. And what happened to Christianity in particular happened in the Council of Nicaea under Constantine when he wanted to consolidate power for the empire under a unifying religion because he's a smart politician and he knows that you need a mythology that spreads through the people of all cultures in order to create a cohesive fighting force and political and financial stable nation. So he makes this deal with Christianity where they select the four gospels that they want. They kick out a bunch of other gospels, but most importantly, they deify Jesus, which consolidates the power into the hands of an aristocracy. And they deified him. He never, if you read the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary, he never deified himself. He always pointed to the light. And he always tried to tell this. That's why I spoke in parables, because it's impossible to talk about. And they decided to make him into God. And that is not what he was saying. 
That's not what he intended at all. And then, so then you get streams coming out of this in modern day. You've got the Orthodox end of the church, which has more mystery. Like if you're to balance, if this is Jesus's humanity and this is Jesus's Christness, everybody wants to be right in the middle, but nobody really is. The Catholic church and the Protestants are a little more on the physical side and the Orthodox church is a little more on the Christ consciousness side. But both of them, both of them, all of them, West and East, created doctrines and dogmas which naturally separate a person from their own inner divine being. And then it becomes about what you believe and not what you are. And that's a very huge difference. So Christianity went down this very long route and mysticism got repressed. There's always been mysticism. There's stacks of books and libraries. It's always existed in the monasteries. But it's often been through the Catholic Church, separated from the general population, because mysticism is abhors institutionalization. And so best to keep that separate from the people, the parishioners. And so it is secreted away, secreted, that's what I meant, secreted away. The Protestants abandon it altogether, except for the Pentecostals. The Pentecostals still got some of it, but it's still stuck inside the confines of their belief system, which is fine. You know, I'm not against any of these things. I'm against when it's used for violence and oppression and repression, I am against all of that. But I'm not against belief in general that brings a person closer to the divine, but I am not a believer. Right. Well, I feel like every path has its own validity. And learning from every path, even if it's it's very repressive like that, as long as it does not go against anybody's personhood, anybody's, right? Anybody's through their own freedom. Right. Because when it does, when it goes bad, you get the Inquisition and you get concentration camps. When it goes bad, it goes bad really bad. Oh, it does. Well, and it gets to where people want to check children's genitals to make sure that the right gender is madness and it's insanity. And it's really not where we were supposed to be headed. But, but, but all of that aside. So you've written several books now from your experiences. You've got Heaven is Beautiful. How Dying Taught Me That Death Is Just the Beginning, Two Minutes for God, Quick Fixes for the Spirit, which I want to circle back to. And then you've got the anthology, Chicken Soup for the Veteran's Soul, Stories to Stir the Pride and Honor the Courage of Our Veterans. So I do want to circle back to Quick Fixes for the Spirit. Is it really that simple? How can we take two minutes for God? Well, there all of those, there's 365 stories in that edition. It's a daily meditative book. And they're all stories drawn from my TV. I had two minute spot every day before the weather on the news on two news stations across Maine, NBC. And so during my two minutes, I had 140 words, 160 words to tell an inspirational story to bring people hope in their morning across the states of Maine and New Hampshire. And yeah. so I told real life stories of human beings. I changed the names to protect the innocent and the guilty, including yeah. myself. And I only always ever had one single message, and that is you are loved. And so whether I talked about magnetars or dust bunnies or my neighbor who cut down a tree, it always landed with some inspirational thought for the day or a question for the day. So My purpose in writing those stories, besides trying to be a cultural influencer for the good, was to try to help people see beyond themselves or to see into themselves, one or the other, and help to use storytelling as a mechanism to communicate their own spirituality and humanity back to them. And so it was, I had 
you know, 80,000, 100,000 views a week for 15 years. And I had to, I used to have to disguise myself to go out in public. I had to wear my ball cap and my dark glasses and not say anything if I wanted to like, I loved the audience. I really did. And anytime anybody ever spoke to me, I always was, you know, I always loved them. But if I was just like out with my wife trying to buy eggs, I, I would. Exactly. You don't want to be accosted by every single right. person wanting to talk to you. Yeah. Right. So that was an interesting experiment in public silence, because as soon as I spoke, people would be like, oh, I know that voice. <laughs> Get recognized. And also in looking at your website, you also do private sessions. What do you do, do in private sessions? I have a niche. Thanks for asking. I have a niche and my niche is the reintegration of mystical experience, either through near-death experience or other kinds of mystical experience. Not only have my studies given me a breadth of knowledge, my own experiences, which have been many, 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 many types of mystical experiences give me an, a personal knowledge and my pastoral counseling years of helping people from and grief and suicidality and all sorts of personal and marital problems all combined to make me someone to talk to, to try to help. I do reflective counseling to help you understand yourself. And I do that in particular around issues of deep spirituality, because one of the things that happens in mystical experience is it's highly disorienting. And it's also privatizing because it's always subjective. And because it's subjective, you can't talk about it. And even when you talk about it, it sounds like a Hallmark card. Even if you're talking to somebody, you know, Tommy came after he was dead and he showed me love, but that is not all what happened. Tommy might've come, but the love is immeasurable and it's just not communicatable. Right. goes back to what you said about, there's just no words for it. You know, the ineffable quality. Right. 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 So you sit with people and walk with them as they unpack these experiences. It sounds like. Yes. And I help people do that in community as well. So on Sunday mornings after what I call not church, which is a, it's a, I could tell you why I named it that, but it's a long story. After not church, I run Mystic Tea Salon, which is a place for 40 to 60 people on a Sunday from all over the world to talk about their mystical experiences. And we have three rules and that's humility, compassion, and kindness. Mm -hmm. And it's about experience, not belief. And so we have a sharing space. Yeah, as well. I think that is so important because we talked about how the traditional religion, at least with the way we do it in the West, has gotten so far away from that mystical experience that when we do hear from our deceased loved ones, we feel like we're absolutely crazy. When we do have hear the voice of an angel, we feel like we're so alone in this. Yep. Got to have somebody to walk with us on this and believe us. Yes. So the other part of me, I was going to be an architect. The other part of me is super practical. I'm a very creative person, but I'm a super practical person. I love science. I love evidence. I follow, I read science every day, science experiments, physics, biology, astronomy, you name it, whatever comes into my science feed, I read it all the time. So what's the evidence of a mystical experience? The evidence is the change of the person and the person who, the noetic knowledge that gets left behind the inexpressible noetic knowledge that gets left behind impacts a person's life and changes the course of their life. And if you're going, say you've got a 60 year voyage and you change your, by one degree, you're not going to land in the same place you would have had you not changed that single degree. And then there's other, you know, by degrees, the course of life gets changed by these mystical experiences. And then it shows up in our behaviors and our perspectives, and our relationships. It doesn't make us perfect, okay? This is not about any sort of being a saint. This is not about holiness. It's not about piety. 
It's not about, it's not even about morality. It's about the fundamental change of self-perception as an eternal being. And if only in the glimpse of the silence of a moment or an out-of-body experience where you now know that your body isn't the end-all and be-all of life. Or when these things happen to us, they change us. We can repress them. We can ignore them, but they never go away because they have, they're not lodged in the brain. They're not lodged in the body. They're lodged in the soul. And in the soul, there's only eternity. And so these changes that happen to us, they change us. So the evidence for this isn't belief systems. The evidence for this is changed relationship, how you treat someone, how you treat yourself. Or sometimes these experiences lead to alcoholism or darkness or depression or suicidality. Those are also changes. And they have to do with repression or feelings of abandonment or isolation. Or so There's lots of reasons why those things can be a result of these experiences, but they are changes in life and they are evidence of this fundamental change. Mm-hmm. So it, this fundamental change can be expressed in any shade of gray in between those but it's always a course change. So yes, it's always going to be a course change, which is interesting because we come here to forget all of that. And then when we remember it, it is, it's a sea change when we remember it, but that's what it's all about. It is. And it gives you access to heaven here now. It does. Right. You know, there's a pretty large faction of my family who never listens to this podcast and that's fine. And they're very, very religious and very, very devout and very, very faithful. And that's okay. It is. Even if they were atheists, that's okay too. Right, right. My father was an atheist for a while, right? So that's fine. Every path is valid, right? Every path gives us something to ponder, something to learn. Yeah, it's amazing. And they all, excuse me, they all lead to death. And in the moment of (laughs) death, there is this transition that happens where you leave your old false self behind and see yourself as you are. So no matter what your path is, the door will open for you. I love that. Yeah. It's the great equalizer. Mm-hmm. We'll get there anyway. I love it. Peter, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important? All you need is love. That's it. You know, you don't meditation practice, a contemplative life, an interior journey, super helpful if you want to access having here and now. But even atheists love their children and love is all you need. You can love your parakeet and that's enough. You could have once loved in at one point in your life, something or someone, and that's enough because love weighs more than everything else. Love is the densest, most precious material in life and in death. And so don't fret. Yeah. Just trust. Just don't fret. Just trust. I love that. Your website, of course, has love in it. Peter Panagora, the link will be in the show notes anyway, but dot love, because that's what it's all about. I love it is. It. it is. And I'll just say that I have a unique last name. There are only all the members of the last name are in my immediate family. And so everybody mispronounces it. It's the nature of the uniqueness. I just want to let you off any hook you may have put yourself on. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I have no qualms about bungling people's names and I have no embarrassment about it either. So Uh, humility is it is. And that's one of the things that's another evidence of a mystical experience is self-acceptance of flaws. 
of your because I do the same thing. If I had to worry every time I mispronounced something or you know slaughtered somebody's name, I would never get on camera. Right. Right. Because people are wonderfully forgiving and they are wonderfully understanding and wonderfully gracious. So I don't worry about it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. It has been very enlightening and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thanks for having a conversation with me and for asking the questions that you did. And thank you for audience for listening in. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the Mind Body Spirit. .fm podcast network